Good to be here t uh, this evening. And uh, a few familiar faces. I've been around Thrive for a long time. So let's see, 10 years ago that uh, this was all started. Met in a, in a cabin. I'm sure you've heard the story about 40 of us the first, first night. And cars were all over the lawn. And God started doing something. And it was pretty cool. We were taking kids outside and baptizing them in the harbor. And Ten years later, God's still moving and working his different ways and different people, not necessarily crowds, but he's got a lot more to do in us than through us. Sometimes we want to have the, God use me in a powerful way, but God's got a lot more to do in us and to us than with us and through us. Think about that. Okay. Um, I was asked to share the gospel. I mean, there, there is so many places where the gospel could be preached from. You know, I could take and go through John 3.16, or um, we could go through uh, 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, I declare to you the gospel, how Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and was buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Um, but I want to just kind of take us through a little bit from the very beginning of scripture and if you're here tonight and you've heard some of this over and over again, um, <clears throat> the gospel never gets old. So what I would ask you to do is uh, maybe listen to this with fresh ears. Like, oh, I've heard this before. No, try to listen to this as if you had never, ever heard it before. That this was the first time these stories were coming to your ears. And, and so I'm going to start off in the book of Genesis. And what I'm going to speak on uh, this evening is three gardens in the Bible. Uh, I think there's more gardens mentioned in scripture than these three. But there's sort of a nice little um, outline of incidences that really uh, tie in and amplify the gospel. So I'm starting in Genesis 3. And... Uh, this is the word of God. It says in Genesis 3 and verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Uh, and you shall not, uh, you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat, uh, when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, what he's saying is God's trying to keep something back from you. Uh, some enlightenment. Uh, verse six, and when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good to eat and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. She took some and ate it, and she gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And the eyes of them both were open, and they realized they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid themselves from the Lord among the trees of the garden, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he answered, 
I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me uh, some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said to this, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed above all the livestock and wild animals, and you will crawl on your belly and eat dust uh, all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And I'm going to just stop right there. This is the very beginning, and, you know, I don't know what your understanding of things are, but I'm just going to say right off the bat that there is a God. And the Bible says, in fact, that the fool has said in his heart, no God. Uh, that is that he, yeah, I think some translations say there is no God, but literally there is, is in italics. It's just, he says, no God. I don't want God in my life. I don't want God in my thoughts. I don't want to think about him. A friend of mine was on an airplane and somebody was sitting next to him and, uh, he was, the person said to him, what is that you're reading? And he said, it's a Bible. And the guy says, well, I don't believe the Bible. And uh, my friend said, well, you know, you might not, you might say you don't believe the Bible, but you'd probably feel a little better if I closed it, wouldn't you? And the guy was just kind of quiet because he, he knew there was something about that book that was real. And... Uh, Another person I knew was a little more belligerent, but somebody said to him, I don't believe there's a God. And the guy says, well, you're worse than the fool because the Bible says the fool has said in his heart there is no God, and you've said it out loud. I want to tell you that all you have to do is look around and you see order in the universe. And if the earth was a few miles closer to the sun, we would fry. And if it was a a few miles further away, we would, we would freeze. And if it spun a little faster, we would fly off. And if it slowed down, uh, things would just would not function. But God has ordered it perfectly. There is a, a creator, and that creator is God. So in the very beginning, God makes the heavens and the earth. That's Genesis 1-1, okay? And then God creates two people. And he brings them together. And, and then here they are in this perfect environment. Jesus was in a hostile environment in a wilderness, and he was tempted of the devil 40 days and 40 nights, but he did not sin. But Adam and Eve are in a perfect environment, and yet they're tempted and they fall. And that fall according to the Bible, brings every one of us into this fallen creation where death came into the world. God said, the day that you eat this, you're surely going to die. And they began to die from that day forward. And death has come in. And death has reigned in this world. And the Bible says, from Adam, it reigned to Moses before the law was ever given. Death was still there. 
and the wages of sin is death. Another verse says, it's appointed unto men once to die, and after death, the judgment. So all of us have an appointment with death. If we don't accept Jesus, one day we're going to die. And that came about because of the fall, because of disobedience. And uh, Adam chose to listen to his wife. His wife, his wife listened to Satan. You, there's some conversation that goes on uh, where there's questioning the word. Has God really said? And Satan tries to get us to question the word. And then, you know, she responds back, you know, well, he didn't say that, but he said we shouldn't eat of it nor touch it. Pretty soon she's adding to the word. And then the next thing you know, it goes from questioning to adding to denying the word. You're not going to really die. And in this temptation, you know, God gave human beings an opportunity. He gave a test of love. He puts them in a perfect environment, but he gives them only one thing that he forbids. And what do they do? They go after that one thing and plunge the whole human race into sin. David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. He's not talking about that his mother was some sinful person who uh, was sleeping with someone that wasn't her husband, and in this sinful relationship, David was conceived. He's basically saying, in another place, he says, I was born in sin and shaped in iniquity. That means that every one of us actually were born as a part of the curse, as a part of a sin, uh, into a sinful race, all right, and tainted by that. So we're sinners by nature and we're sinners by practice. Now, we can get into theological discussions and your mind might be racing all over, but I would just say to you, if you have questions about that, come and see me. We'll open the Bible and we'll look at the Word of God and see as a final authority what it has to say. So we actually had this curse of sin on us that gave us a propensity to sin. That's why the Bible says there's none, I know this isn't popular in some theological circles today, there's none that does good, no, not one. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark is what that means. Because God's standard is perfect, and we are not. God, if we lined up down in ocean shores, anybody been there? And we said, we're all going to swim to Japan. And we all jump in the water, and some people swim 10 feet, dog paddling, and then they start blowing bubbles, and down they go. And someone else swims 100 yards, and someone else is out there swimming two miles. And they're saying, I'm sure a lot better swimmer than that guy. What is that in compared to Japan? And if God's standards are way up here, and our practice and the guilt of our sins is way down here, something had to bridge that gap. And that's why God's going to say to Adam that the, and, and to the woman, Eve, that one day that serpent's head is going to be crushed. And one day the serpent is going to bruise the heel of her descendant. It's a reference to Jesus coming into the world. But one thing I want to point out before we get away from this first garden is when sin comes in and you have the fall of man, 
This is really, really important. It isn't Adam and it isn't Eve that run to God and say, God, we messed up. Here we are. It's actually God who comes to where man is and woman is in that garden and says, where are you? In other words, it was God seeking them, not them seeking God. And you can read it in Romans 3 that there's actually none that seeketh after God. That is, left to ourselves, we don't seek God. It takes a divine work of the Holy Spirit to cause us to say, man, I've got a hunger in my heart. I've been trying to fill this void with all kinds of stuff. One more video game, one more movie, one more this, one more that, one more hookup, one more time parting, whatever. And there's still this emptiness and there's this void. And then the Holy Spirit starts to work in our life. And it's God who comes seeking after us, not we seeking after God. Jesus says, the Son of Man, he says in Luke, has come, in reference to Zacchaeus, to seek and to save that which is lost. And I'm glad God came seeking because if he didn't, I would never have been found. And so <laughs> the truth of the matter is, you didn't find Jesus. You didn't find God. He found you. You might, it might have happened in a way where it looked like in the end, hey, I found God. Or you thought somebody else found God. But in reality, no one comes, the Bible says, unless the Father draw him. But you say, well, then, unless God works in my heart. Well, we have a responsibility. And the very next part of that verse says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out or turn away. So God's doing the seeking, but he puts a responsibility on us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't understand that. He's actually commanded, the Bible says, all men everywhere to repent. But unless God works in your heart, you're not going to. Now, I'm not trying to preach hyper-Calvinism here. I'm just preaching the facts of the Bible. And this is, this is if you looked at it in reality, when it comes to salvation and accepting Jesus left to ourselves, none would come. But God steps in, and you and I, many people here, have come. Maybe you haven't yet, but maybe tonight you will. But one day, uh, but after um, somebody said it's like the, this, left when it comes to salvation and receiving Jesus left to ourselves, none would. But first of all, I better put it this way, all may, none would, some shall. All may come. God's calling everyone to come. But none of us left to ourselves would get the bright idea, oh, I'm smarter than everybody else, I'll accept Jesus. I, I put it this way, like if you think of, uh, of this, if, let's suppose we go back to medieval times and there's an impregnable castle that no enemy can, can get in and it's safe and it has wells of water inside and all kinds of food. And one day the message comes that there's an enemy army that's coming through and it's sweeping through the land, killing every man, woman, and child. 
kind of like what's happened, to, what was starting to happen in Ukraine. The heart of man is pretty ruthless apart from God. And so what happens? Somebody in that, there's a king in that little castle, that impregnable castle. And so he sends a messenger down to a village because his heart goes out to the people in this village below and says, come up to my castle. It's safe. You won't be, you won't come under the judgment. But all the people mock and they say, ah, that's not going to happen. We don't believe that stuff. That's a bunch of fairy tales. That's just made up. We don't care what that king says. I don't care that there's a God. This man's heart. So this king in his compassion says, go down to that village and go drag so-and-so and so-and-so in here. And so they, he, they go down and they bring these people in. And then the enemy army comes and wipes everybody else out. Can anybody in that castle say, well, I'm here because I was smarter than those other people? No. Can anybody uh, who perished in that village say, I didn't have a chance? Or uh, whatever. No, they got there because of divine intervention. And the Bible says, unless you're born of water and of the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless the Holy Spirit had worked in my heart to open my blind eyes, because you know what? I was dead in trespasses and in sin, and dead people can't even respond. But God came along and through the Holy Spirit started moving and working in my life and brings life in there and makes me start to realize, man, I got issues. I'm in a bad way. I need help. And through that quickening of the Holy Spirit, my eyes were open to say, I need Jesus. I'm a sinner. And I responded to that message, but left to myself, I wouldn't have had God not worked. Does that make sense to anybody here today? So um, we like in our pride to say, well, it's just totally up to me. It just, you know, no, everybody has a chance. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He gives the invitation to everybody. He says, whosoever will may come. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that what? Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And so it was God in that first garden who came down and started seeking Adam and Eve and says, where are you guys? What happened? Oh, well, we heard your voice and we were afraid we hid ourselves. Well, hold on a second here. I thought you made some fig leaves so that you wouldn't feel naked anymore. But even with the fig leaves, they still felt naked. You know what those fig leaves are sort of a picture of? Our own attempts to be acceptable in God apart from his remedy of salvation. Those are fig leaves of religion. They're fig leaves of uh, good works that we might think are going to attain God's favor. Yet the Bible says that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags in his sight. This is the gospel we're preaching here. We don't hear this all the time anymore. You know, unless you go back and listen to Billy Graham preaching in the 1950s or something, you don't hear a lot about heaven or hell or sin or judgment or death. But it's in the Bible 
over and over and over again. And if somebody just comes into your church and stands up on Sunday morning and says, you know, if you just believe in Jesus, your smile will be brighter, your teeth will be whiter, and your steps will be lighter, and you'll be rich, and you'll be healthy, and everything will be well. And by the way, you're a pretty good person, and you just need to believe in yourself. Because after all, God saw you, and he thought he'd be lucky to have you on his team. So, you know, just believe in who you are, and you'll be good. That's a bunch of crock. That is a bunch of, I'm not even going to use the words, but if I could, I would. All right? Um, it's just horse whatever, okay? It's just bad stuff because it's not true. The Bible says we're destitute, we're helpless, there's nothing we could do to save ourselves. We're drowning in sin. We're going down for the third time, and we might try to sow the fig leaves. We might even try to still hide Sunday morning, there's people all over Gig Harbor that are hiding in their houses. Church is going on, but they're not there. They're somewhere else. They hide because they don't want to come out and actually face God. And, and we think somehow that, you know, we don't want to, you know, make anybody think less of us if we actually kind of come out and tell the truth or witness to them. You would be amazed how many people are eager and wanting because God has done a work in their life already and they've tasted the emptiness of sin and the pleasures that are for a season and they're waiting for somebody to actually come and tell them the truth. You know what? You're actually lost. And you may think you're running your life, but you're under the bondage of Satan. And you might even think you're on the fence, but by the way, Satan owns the fence. And so... You are actually lost and you need Jesus because the wages of sin is death. And if you go on in your sin, you're going to taste an eternal death and spend an eternity in hell unless you look to the cross and see where Jesus died and put your faith in the blood of Jesus. And we have a world that needs to hear people tell the truth. And the church has become mamby-pamby, wishy-washy, little babies that want the world to think we're okay and we're acceptable and we're and and then the world because we try that attitude the world actually disdains us because there's such a thing as the reproach of Christ read about it in Hebrews Moses who lived long before Jesus was ever born it says by faith he forsook Egypt he was heir to the throne if he, if we can believe history and yet he esteemed the bible says the, he esteemed the reproach of Christ. I thought Christ wasn't even born yet then. Greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt, the most wealthy country in the world. Moses turned his back on it and said, I'm going to choose the reproach of Christ. He recognized that one day a Messiah would come, and it would come through the Israelites, and God had raised him up to be a deliverer. And so he stands face to face with, with Pharaoh's... Um, Musicians and their demonic efforts to try to deceive people, but his rod turns into a serpent just like theirs and swallows theirs up because God's power is always greater, and greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So they were hiding, they were trying to make fig leaves, they were blaming others. Adam says, Well, it's the woman you gave me. We want to blame people. We don't take responsibility for our own stuff. We've got to take responsibility for our crap. Pardon me, 
my expression. I'm the one who messed up. That's part of adulthood. We talk about adulting, okay? One of the big things in adulting is taking responsibility. But it really takes a work of God in our lives to say, okay, I'm going to start accepting and say, it was me. Judah was a total scumbag in the Bible till one day God does a work in his life and he actually had a, a sexual relationship with someone who had been his daughter-in-law, her husband was dead, who pretended to be a prostitute. And then when he hears that she's pregnant, he wants to have her put to death in his self-righteousness. And then he finds out that it was him because he had left his staff and, and something, uh, his signet ring as a token that he would come and bring her a, a lamb or a, uh, an offering. And so when he finds out, he says, she has been more righteous than I. He takes responsibility for his stuff, and he becomes the head and not the tail after that. And Jesus is referred to as what? The lion of the tribe of Judah. All because he learned to take responsibility. You know, Jesus took responsibility for our sins when we wouldn't take responsibility for him. We did all the sinning. He did the saving. The Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. In the garden, in the first garden, is God seeking man, not man seeking God. It's God coming down in the cool of the day and calling to people who had rebelled against him and sinned and said one day, I'm gonna bring my son into this world and he's gonna be the savior and he's gonna crush the serpent's head. Well, we've been to the first garden and we've seen man's sinfulness. The fact that, as it says in Isaiah 53, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way. And yet the Lord has laid on him the sin of us all. Isaiah 53, 6. That we have, as we already quoted Romans 3:23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We go through and fast forward through the scriptures and page after page are pictures and types and shadows of a sacrificial Passover lamb that would one day come and shed his blood for the sin of the world. And all the Old Testament prophets prophesying and looking forward to a Messiah that would come. And Jesus, when he came here, referred to those scriptures and he said to the religious leaders of his day, you search the scriptures. They are they which testify of me. After his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, he says these words to these discouraged disciples, old fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. If you just believed all the stuff you read in the Old Testament. And then he says, ought not the Christ to have suffered and then entered into his glory? They were looking for a Messiah to come and destroy the Romans and, and set them as a nation free. And he said, no, no, the cross has to come before the kingdom. The cross has to come first. The Christ 
that, that Messiah, the Christ that you're looking for, if you just read your Old Testament scriptures, he had to suffer first. Because, I mean, right up to the end, the disciples like, oh man, I want to sit on your right hand in the kingdom or on the left. And, John, and John, Zebedee and John, they, they get their mother and she comes in and like, you know, grant that my sons get to sit on your right hand or your left hand. And Jesus says, that's not for me to give, you know. Um, even after his resurrection, they're still thinking about the kingdom. Oh, it's going to happen right now. You know, Jesus said, Acts 1, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons. But you will receive power after the Holy Spirit's come upon you. There's something to do in the meantime. You're going to be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the furthermost parts of the earth. Jerusalem was right where they were at. Sometimes we want to go to the mission field somewhere far away. Then we'll witness for God. No, it starts right where you're at. And if you can't be faithful where you're at, don't think you're going to be faithful somewhere farther away where you don't know anybody. It starts right where you are. The other thing that I think was pretty cool about that is Jerusalem was the most guilty place. That's where the Son of God was crucified. He says, you start with the very worst of the worst where it all happened. And then you take it from there. And those ripple effects went out and they've gone out for 2,000 years and they've come all the way to Gig Harbor, Washington. And you and I have been the recipients of what began as the witness of the disciples who had walked with Jesus three and a half years, seen him crucified, and as we're going to see in a little bit, seen him rise from the dead. So, the next garden, we get to uh, Luke's gospel, and we find out that Jesus celebrates the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And then he gets up after Judas leaves to betray him, and he, he goes out across the brook Kidron and up the other side to the Mount of Olives. And the Bible says that at the Mount of Olives that Jesus goes a distance from his disciples and he kneels down and prays. And in kneeling down and praying in that garden known as the Garden of Gethsemane, okay, he prays these words, Father, if it be possible, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. What a great prayer that if you got the guts to pray it, you should pray every day. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And the Bible says that in that agony in the garden, at one point, his sweat that was coming off his body was like drops of blood. I don't understand that completely. Some people say it literally was bleeding through his pores. But whatever, to those who witness it, like drops of blood dripping down. This is the Son of God. This is the holy, sinless Son of God. Jesus never sinned. If the Bible says... Peter, who was a man of action, said about Jesus, he did no sin. And John, who was a man of the, uh, uh, or uh, John, who was, I should say, Paul, who was a man of the intellect, said he knew no sin. Peter, a man of action, he did no sin. And John, who was close to Jesus and leaned on his chest, says, in him was no sin. 
He was holy and harmless and separate from sinners and undefiled. Only one who could ever take our place had to be a perfect, spotless, sinless lamb. The Passover lamb had to be looked at without spot and without blemish because it was a picture of the true lamb. When John the Baptist would look at Jesus as he walked and say, Look, behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. The old hymn of the faith says, guilty, you're not going to like this, guilty, vile, and helpless, we. Spotless lamb of God was he. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a savior. That's the truth. He was sinless. We were not. We deserved hell. And on that middle cross, Jesus took the concentrated horrors of hell for eternity in your place and in mine. He exhausted it. He said, it is finished. I'm getting ahead of myself because Jesus saying, if it be possible, he's in agony in that garden. Why is he in agony? He is anticipating what's ahead. Why would it be such a hard thing to be made sin when you're perfectly holy to have the filth of our sin upon him and also to be separated from his father because of our sin. We were separated. Jesus had to go through a separation so that we could be brought near by the blood of Jesus. Okay? I think of it this way. I have a son. He loves to be clean. He would take baths all the time, showers as a kid. Every time he got dirty, he would wash. He had to have clean clothes Every day, now one of his brothers would put the same shirt on all the time. I mean, we lived kind of in the country and kids just did stuff. But he always needed to be clean because he couldn't stand to be dirty. And I thought about it. What if I went out in the backyard, called him over when he's five years old, held him up by his feet, took the lid off the septic tank, and said, in 30 seconds, I'm going to baptize you in that septic. All that filth, all that horrible, stinky smell, I'm going to put you in there and I'm going to pull you out. What would he feel like with anticipation of that filth? That is a very feeble illustration of how Jesus felt before going to the cross. He said in one place, I have a baptism Luke 16, to be baptized with. And how shall I rest until it's accomplished? That baptism he's talking about was being baptized on the cross with all of our filth and all of our sin, where the judgment of God would roll over him. And as, I, uh, as Zechariah prophesied, awake, O sword, against my shepherd, the wrath of a holy God against sin, the sword of God's judgment would come down on his holy son and Jesus would pay it all at the cross. And at the end he would say, it is finished. Nothing more that could be added to that. I like to say there's two religions in the world. It's doing and done. And everybody's into one or the other. Either you're trying to earn favor with God by doing stuff. I tell people, Good works are not the root of salvation, they're the fruit of salvation. We're not saved by works, but we're saved unto good works. 
Paul says, uh, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. This is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But it is the gift of God. That's what you had last week. The free gift of God. Uh, lest any man should boast. But then he goes on to say, but you are. We are his workmanship. We are his workmanship. His masterpiece created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God has prepared in advance for us to do. You're not saved by works, but you're created to do good works through the new creation that you become when you are born again, when you are regenerated, when you are made new through the work of Jesus on a cross. I know I'm throwing out some terms here you don't hear in church every day, but this is the gospel of the Bible. It's the truth of God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, John 14, 6. And in Acts 4, 12, Peter stands up and says, there is no salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There isn't any other way except Jesus. Not anything you do, not hanging on the coattails of anything else, not some religious system of beliefs or cultic ideas that you want to hitch your wagon to. It's Jesus. And as we say often here at Thrive, it's Jesus, 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 nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Just Jesus. And one more thing. It's just Jesus. It is. Salvation is Jesus. He did it all. He, he's the, he, it's just Jesus. No other name under heaven. Only way. Only truth. No salvation in any other. All biblical. All things God put in his word. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. Or better put, God said it. That settles it. I believe it. So, we've been to the first garden and we've seen man's sinfulness. We get to the second garden and we see Jesus' earnestness praying in view of what was going to take place at the cross. But one more garden that I don't want to miss. And in John 9, 19, it says, Now, the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden, there was a new tomb in which never a man had been laid. And Joseph of Arimathea comes and he begs the body of Jesus because he's fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah made 700 years before that Jesus would be with the rich in his death. And so it takes a rich man to come and get his body. And Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus take 100 pounds of spices and they lovingly take the body of Jesus down from the cross because God never allowed wicked man to ever touch his son again. After the work of redemption was accomplished, loving hands, redeemed hands, believing hands, people on the side of truth hands, because there's only two sides. Jesus says, he that's not with me is against me. You either on the Lord's side or you're on Satan's side. 
There's no, you might think you're running your own life, but you're in bondage. Like the children of Israel in the Old Testament working for Pharaoh, making bricks in slavery. That's where we were before the Passover lamb came. And Jesus, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. And God delivered us out of bondage. He took us out of the grip of Pharaoh. He took us out. He's delivered those who, through fear of death, the Bible says, were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now, as a Christian, we say, O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? Thanks be unto God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, 56, 57, and 58. So loving hands take Jesus down from the cross, put him in a tomb where no one has been laid before, new tomb. Roll a stone, there's a wedge over that stone, there's probably a four to five foot opening into that tomb. And when they pull the wedge out, that stone that probably weighed close to two tons rolls in front of that tomb. And there Jesus is in that tomb. But when we get to the next chapter in John chapter 20 and verse 1, it says early in the morning on the first day of the week, what happens? There's those who come to the tomb and they look and what do they see? The stone has been rolled away. A two-ton stone has moved. Who moved it? Remember, there was a whole garrison of soldiers that were guarding that tomb because, they, well, he, you know, this guy that healed the sick and opened the eyes of the blind and rocked on water and raised dead people and all that stuff. He said, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and I'm going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men, Matthew 16, and I'm going to be scourged, prophesied it all ahead of time, and then I'm going to be crucified, but the third day I'm going to rise from the dead. He had said at one place, John 2, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. In John 15, or 10, he says, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down and I have the power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my father. And so on the first day of the week, what happens? They come there and the stone was rolled away. Now I will tell you this, the stone was not rolled away to let Jesus out. He had a glorified body, he could walk through walls. The stone was rolled away to let us in. So we could look in and see that the tomb was empty. That morning, he just passed right through with a resurrected, glorified body. And Paul, when he's defending the truth of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, moreover, brothers and sisters, I'm going to declare unto you the true gospel. I'm paraphrasing just a little bit. Wherein the gospel of which you stand, that you're standing in, he's talking to Christians, unless you have believed in vain. Oh boy, that's kind of scary, believed in vain. What's he getting at? Have you believed in vain? Have I believed in vain? What's he talking about? Well, there were those who had come into those at Corinth and they were questioned, they were trying to teach that there was no such thing as a resurrection. And so Paul's going to refute that. In fact, a little bit later, he's going to say, if Christ isn't raised, we're still in our sins and we're of all people to be pitied. The cornerstone of the gospel hangs.
hangs on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul says, if it's not true, then you have believed in vain. But that he says, so unless you have believed in vain. What's the next verse? How that. Verse 3. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. What scriptures? Didn't have the New Testament yet. Old Testament. And then he was seen of Cephas, Peter. And then of the twelve, okay? And last of all, he was seen of me as one born out of due time. Who was Paul? A hater of Christians. He believed in the traditions of pharisaical Judaism. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. As touching the law outwardly, he looked like a really perfect good guy. So the fact that his religious traditions were somehow being threatened by the fact that the gospel only hinged on something Jesus did rather than what we do was something he thought needed to be stamped out. And so he went around killing Christians in Jerusalem, but he wasn't satisfied with that. So with papers in his hands to hail men and women in prison, he heads to Damascus and on the Damascus road, he sees a light, he hears a voice, he is struck to the ground. He says, who are you, Lord? And the voice comes back, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. And he learned right then that when he touched any part of the body of Christ, he was touching the head in heaven. And his life was transformed. Why was Paul's life transformed? Because he encountered on the Damascus Road the resurrected Christ. And we could get in an airplane tonight and we could fly over to a certain part of the world and we could go to Arabia and we could look at a tomb and in that tomb we would see part of the body, would, they would show us that tomb and they'd say, this tomb is where Muhammad is buried. And we could go to another part of the world and there'd be a large grassy knoll and they'd say, in this knoll, right over here, this monument, this is where Confucius is buried. And we could go to another part of the world and they would show us a hill about 200 feet high and on top of that hill, a temple about 200 feet high. And inside that temple, some bones and some fingers that are part of the body of Buddha. But we could go over to the land of Israel and they would show us a tomb that they think or believe Jesus was buried in and that tomb is empty, and the stone is rolled away, and there is no body. And when the, Jesus told his disciples, when you start preaching this gospel, you go straight back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a 15-minute walk from where they were. And so, I should say this, the garden, which was outside of the city, was a 15-minute walk from downtown Jerusalem, not even. And when they stood up and began to proclaim Jesus raised from the dead, if Jesus was still in the grave, all anybody would have to do is go up to Jerusalem and say, or, or go out, out to the tomb and say, well, here's his body. But it wasn't there. No one could produce a body. 
Simon Greenleaf, who has a university named after him, who was famous as a legal scholar for what? Studying the preponderance of evidence. What constitutes evidence in a court of law? He was an expert on what constituted evidence. And he said, there's more evidence to the resurrection of Jesus Christ than almost any other event in history. We go back to the manuscripts that testify about Jesus and the scriptures and the resurrection of Jesus. And we go back to the first, almost to the first century from when these events happened and there it is all recorded. And there's hundreds more manuscripts that point to Jesus than there ever was to Socrates or Plato or any of these other ancient figures of history because Jesus Christ is Lord. The Bible says one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Romans 10.9 says, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Not might be, will be. For with the heart, man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Have you ever confessed Jesus as Lord? I'm going to tell you, if you never have, this is your hour. You know what the Bible says? Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. If God is speaking to you, listen. Because it says, behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Somebody said the the road to tomorrow leads to the town of never. And Satan's always trying to get us to put off what we know we need to do right now. And God's time is always now. And if you have never accepted Jesus, this is an opportunity. And all you have to do is in simple faith, come in repentance and say, God, I'm a sinner. Just tell the truth. Just agree with God about your sin. And say, I can't save myself I need a savior, it's Jesus. Jesus, I take you as my Lord. I own you and confess you from this day forward that you are indeed the Messiah, the Christ. You are God, you are Lord, and I give my life to you. I live on a farm out on the Key Peninsula. Right near that farm was, uh, there were two parcels there 36 acres and four acres. And four acres my house is built on, but I own the other 36 acres. But at one time, that was just an abandoned house. When I first owned the 36 acres, I had to buy the four acres that had belonged to the biggest druggie, thief, stealer, notorious guy on the Key Peninsula. He manufactured meth there. He stole things from neighbors. I heard story after story of this guy I didn't even know he was still alive. And one day, about a year ago, I get a phone call. 
and it's his girlfriend. Her name is Margaret. She's Tim. John is in St. Joseph's Hospital. He's got cancer and he's dying and he wants you to come and see him. I've never met the guy in my life. She says, here's a phone number. You can call him. I call him. He says, I want you to come. I want to know how to be saved. There's two people in this world that I know that can tell me how to, how to receive Jesus. My sister Margaret, who's over in the Alzheimer's Care Center, and you. I said, they won't let me in. We got COVID. Well, can't you get in as a pastor? I said, not even as a pastor, they won't let me in. He said, well, then I'm busting out of this place because I got to see you. I thought, oh, that'll never happen. He's crazy. Next thing you know, I get another call from Margaret. She says, this is the next day. He got out of there. He walked out. The nurses tried to stop him. He left. He's in some little log cabin out on the Key Peninsula. He wants you to come see him. I said, well, can you give me an address? She says, yeah. So I go down the worst driveway, past all the no trespassing signs, we'll shoot you on sight, past all the little trailers and hovel homeless things that these druggy people are at, and I get way in the back, and there's this little cabin. And in that little cabin, here's this guy, there in bed, and he sees me walk in the door, and he reaches out. He just reaches out with his hand, and he says, tell me how to be saved. So I share with them the thief on the cross and different stories of the Bible. And that right there, that night, he totally surrenders his life to the Lord. He says, God, I'm a terrible sinner. I deserve the judgment of hell. But I believe that you sent your son Jesus to take my place. And by faith, I reach out and receive him now. Jesus, come into my life. He from that moment on, began to witness to everybody. I had his friends calling me. I pull into a gas station. They come over. We heard what happened to John. People I never know or met in my life. It's the power of the gospel transforming lives. There's a gal that came to Thrive. I'll end with this story. And she, she came to Thrive. And I heard from her former youth pastor, don't trust her. She's not trustworthy. The first three months she came, she just cried. And one day, she, her life has changed. I sat in her living room when her parents told in front of me, said to her, you've wrecked our lives. Today, she's a pastor's wife in Bolivia, expecting her fourth child, serving God. The power of the transformation of the gospel. We came to the first garden and we saw a man's sinfulness. We come to the second garden and we see Christ's earnestness, sweat as it were, great drops of blood. We get to the last garden and we see the tomb's emptiness. And we find out that the gospel is real and that Jesus is the only way. And we come face to face with a decision that we have to make. And I pray tonight that the Holy Spirit will work in your heart and woo you and bring you to the point where you say, God, I need Jesus. Because there's only one way of salvation. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. Let's pray. Father, bless your word tonight. Thank you for the power of the gospel. I think of how Paul could say in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. 
God, would you bring a boldness into the heart of every Christian here to not be ashamed of your gospel, but to be bold for the truth, to be bold for Jesus, not to cower and cringe to the politically correct world we live in. Any old dead fish can float downstream. It takes a live fish to swim upstream against the current. God, I pray for Christians that would truly live their lives for your glory, that would wake up each day and say, Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. God, here's my life. Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. And Lord, anybody here that doesn't know you, I pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you would draw them tonight with irresistible drawing, that they would not be able to refuse the gospel any longer, but they would just say, Lord, you've spoken to me tonight. I hear, I know that now is the time. Today, I've heard your voice. Lord, soften my heart. I just come as I am because I know that you only receive sinful people because that's all there are, and I'm one of them. Lord, may people come to you tonight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.